Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Welcome to episode 13. This is going to be a quick introduction because this interview is so good that we just have to jump right in. It was a dream come true to do this interview. It's with New York Times bestselling author Janine Roth. I am such a fangirl. This woman and her books have had a huge influence on my life, on my own work, and she is like the fairy godmother of showing people the way to end the horrible relationship that we have with food or with our critical voice, the way that we judge and we shame our bodies. So if you feel like you have just been going from one diet to another, if you don't feel feel good in your own body, if you find yourself eating in a way that is harmful to your health, to your greater good, listen closely. It's an incredible interview. Enjoy. obsessed with you. I hope that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, but I am such a fan. What did you say? I'm obsessed with you. Like I- You're obsessed with me. I have read all of your (laughs) books. I love them. The first time Nick had dinner with you, he texted me from under the table and I was screaming. (laughs) (laughs) And I was screaming and, um, and so it's, you know, a lot of, so much of my work, I mean, my journey- at looking at my struggle with with my binge eating and my yo-yo diets and all of that really came from your work. And then because I had tapping, it was just such a perfect match that yeah. I was able to take a lot of the principles you taught and I began to use them for myself, but, you know, use it with tapping. And that's how my own work evolved. And I credit you in my book and I tell everyone to buy mm-hmm. your book. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful because I feel like not, not just work, you, you influenced my work, but just personally, it's so exhausting to be in that place where you're just always having those episodes of binge eating and then being okay for a while and then going back and just the battle. And so just having the freedom from that is is the greatest gift anyone could have given me. And, you know, you helped get me there. So thank you so much. Mm. Oh, really? Um, and I know that there's, I know there's people listening and they're nodding their head and going, okay, that's me. Like I, you know, we have different names for it. There's a compulsive eating and there's binge eating and there's emotional eating. Why do we have this really difficult relationship with something that we have to do? You know, we have to eat. Why do you think so many people have just this horrible relationship? What's it stem from? Um, I don't think, although obviously the expression of it is through food. It shows up. It manifests. It, you know, it's like painting a, a big canvas with particular colors, and the colors that... M- many of us use are the food colors, if that makes any sense. So, But I don't think that the problem 
stems with food itself. I think it stems with how we feel about ourselves and our relationship to ourselves, how we're comfortable or not in our own skin, how we've learned to meet feelings, thoughts, beliefs, um, you know, self-loathing, shame, judgment, things like that. And many women in particular, but not just women, express that whole complex of things I just mentioned through their relationship with food, but some people express it through their relationship with drugs, alcohol, work, mm-hmm. other people, relationships. You know, it's it's really about coming to terms with yourself in a way that many of us have never learned to do. Yes. That was one of my biggest aha moments because I always felt that this was my big problem was my weight. My big problem was the binge eating and the yo-yo diet. If I could just get that under control. And so when you do that, you begin to obsess about diets and different programs and plans. And reading your work, it was like, well, actually, no, this is a symptom of something else. Yeah. And but right. how do you get that? You know, you do these great workshops. We're going to talk about them in a, in a little bit. But when a, when someone comes to you and they're like how they're like me, they were in the they're in the position or or how I was in the position of saying, Janine, this is my problem. My problem is overeating in my weight. If I could lose this weight, my life would be so much better. What do you say to them? I'd say I I hear that you believe that. And maybe that's true. So let's just put that aside for a moment and look at all the other times in your life that you have gained and lost weight. And let's see what kind of difference that made. Let's see if what you are telling yourself is true. Because most of us don't want to know what we know. And we're not willing to consider the evidence that we've already lost weight 5, 10, 15, 30, 40, 50, 100 times in our lives. And for five minutes or 10 minutes, we felt great and nothing was wrong. And then how we felt about ourselves and how we felt about life itself started coming in. And showing up and expressing itself in other ways. And then, of course, eventually through food again. Because I think there's a sort of a a multidimensional thing that happens when somebody loses weight that they've wanted to lose for a very, very long time. First of all, there's the belief that it's going to fix them and make everything that was wrong right. And then it doesn't do that. It can't do that. It's a physical thing. A body is a physical thing. Nothing you can touch, have, achieve, buy is going to fix that in you which you're turning to food to fix or unfix by losing weight or that that, that didn't really make sense. But you're turning to food to make something that feels like it's broken go away. And then you think if you lose weight 
then that will fix what's broken. And it doesn't do that. It never does that. It can't do that. It can't do that. It can help you get into a smaller size clothes, dress, jeans, shirt. It can it can make you feel much more comfortable and at ease in your body. But that's different than saving you. That's different than making what's wrong right inside you. It just can't possibly do that. And so from the disappointment that most of us feel, because we keep hoping that it's going to be something as easy as that. Now, I'm not saying that losing weight and keeping it off is easy. I'm saying we hope there's going to be a fix that's going to be tangible. Like if I lose weight and or if I'm rich and or really successful and or have a New York Times bestseller and or get into a relationship with somebody adore I adore, live someplace I love, then it's all going to be okay. And then it's not. And the disappointment of that can often lead to somebody turning to food again. Mm -hmm. So it's a cycle that happens right there. Right. So we're using food as our anti-anxiety medication. In a way. And also, I, I don't think people realize that when they lose weight, what happens unless they have done the work on the inner level or certainly done some inquiry and considered this, that when they lose weight, they're suddenly without their protective padding. So as much as people say, I want to lose weight, I have to lose weight, I want to, I want to get thinner, they also as badly want to keep on that weight. Mm. And nobody likes hearing me say that ever. No, you're wrong. Maybe that's true for everybody else, but it's not true for me. I really want to lose this weight. And once I lose this weight, then, but what happens when you lose the weight without considering the things that you and I are talking about, Jessica, is that suddenly you feel like your protective padding is gone and you don't have the layers in between you and other people or between you and disappointment and you don't have the thing that you turn to when you were disappointed because now you're not eating to do that. And so you don't quite know how to negotiate without the weight. And that's a really big thing. And, you know, most people don't talk about that, but that was a very big thing for me with my weight. And so I know that's a big thing because of the many people I work with as well. You know, people yeah. use their weight to say, go away. No, I need time alone. I um, don't want that. I do want this. Or they feel so unattractive at a particular weight that they don't have to take risks. And there's something in them that doesn't want to take risks. And so suddenly they've lost the weight and now they're supposed to take risks, but they don't really want to take risks. They're scared. So it gets complex in there. It does. And from all the people that I work with, I find that this to be the most common thing and the biggest aha moment. I want to talk about safety and protection. So 
here we are, we are holding on to the this weight, oftentimes unconsciously because of the need for protection. One of the things that you say in your book that's so interesting is that we are trying to protect ourselves from something that's already happened. What do you mean by that? Yes, I love that. We protect our losses from already we protect ourselves from losses that have already happened. One of my beloved teachers said that to me and it has so stuck with me through the years. What I what she meant and what I mean, well, actually, I don't know what she meant because it was so many years ago, but what I mean when I say that is that there are certain places in us that got frozen in the past, certain places we just stopped because it was stopped growing because it was too painful. Maybe we didn't feel cherished, welcomed, maybe... In our past, the people we relied on were depressed or having a hard time or somebody we loved died. We felt abandoned, rejected, hurt, abused. And, you know, it's you can't grow up and become a functioning human being without having wounds. You just can't. It's impossible. Uh, it's just part of being alive. It's part of it. But the places where we do feel wounded, if we didn't have somebody saying to us, oh, sweetheart, come and tell me about it. If we didn't feel like who we were was okay, if we didn't feel like we could move through it, process it, let go of it, then those places remain in our bodies and our psyches they remain and they and we're we we don't want to go back and feel those feelings so we're constantly protecting ourselves from feeling what we think would destroy us even though they're just feelings right now you know when we were younger if something terrible happened and there was nobody there to be with us in it and see us through it then it was probably true that we didn't have the resources to work through it and maintain an intact ego. But now, so we needed to put those feelings away. We needed to protect ourselves from the feelings that those losses evoked. Now we're adults. We don't need that kind of protection. Mm-hmm. And we still think about those feelings and um whatever they evoked in us as being unfeelable, as being something that would destroy us if we let ourselves feel it. And it's just never, ever, ever true. When I do inquiry with people, which is one of the methods that I use, and we talk, for instance, about the sadness. Where where do you feel the sadness? People are so used to having global ideas about sadness or rejection or grief and and wrenching away from them, turning away from them, because they believe if they let themselves feel it, they would never get off the bed again. They could mm-hmm. not function. They could not take care of their kids. They couldn't go to the bank. And uh, so, so we keep on avoiding what we think are scary places without realizing that at this point, they are just feelings. That's all they are. And in the same way that happy, joyful feelings come and go, no matter how much we wish they would last, so do feelings on the other spectrum. Mm. 
So when we make the intention to go, okay, I'm going to allow myself to process these feelings, to allow myself to cry or to be angry or whatever, uh, sorry, to be angry, whatever that feeling is, what does that look like? What do you recommend that someone take an evening, take a moment in the car? You know, what's it look like to give yourself that space? Well, I would say at the beginning, the very first time you do this, it's good to have a friend, you know, just just for you to, because you might be scared of feeling sadness or rejection or abandonment or loneliness. Um, so it's nice to have somebody there with you. Some kind of support is always helpful. In Women, Food, and God, I go through the steps of inquiry. Um, and all it really is, Jessica, is, is just... Taking, it could be three minutes. It could be two minutes. It could be 10 minutes. It's noticing, oh, and this is where people usually turn to food. I feel sad. There's, there's some kind of feeling that's going on right now. And feelings show up in the body. They show up in the body. And so you, you ask yourself, well, where do I feel that? Well, I feel it in my chest. Oh, what does it feel like in your chest? So you become curious. That's the process of allowing it. At that point, you've entered into it instead of eaten to distract yourself from it. So you become curious about it. And in a global way, most people are not curious about their relationships with food. They do the mm -hmm. same thing in general about their relationships with food as they do with feelings that they perceive to be uncomfortable or might be uncomfortable, which is just turn away from it. Right. Not be interested at all. Just take it away, make it go away, do something, fix me, let me put this in somebody else's lap who knows better. I want a big person to take care of me and make it go away. And so with sadness, for instance, you might say, Oh, I feel, I feel, it feels like a lump in my chest. What kind of lump in my chest? Oh, it feels like a, a red pulsing lump in my chest. And the second you start inquiring into it, it changes because everything changes. Every minute, everything changes. There's a dynamism to living itself. But the process of noticing it allows you to also see that you are bigger than the feeling itself because that which is noticing a feeling cannot be the feeling. Yes. You know, there has to be two for there to be that kind of noticing happening. Two meaning there's the feeling and then there's a noticer of the feeling. This is completely what meditation is about as well. It's about... You know, when people teach mindfulness or meditation, they teach you to notice your thought, notice the thoughts coming through, the activity of the mind, without jumping on every thought and identifying with every thought. And that's the same thing we do with feelings. One of my favorite mantras that I always say is replace criticism with curiosity. Yes, beautiful. And it's like in those moments when we find that we're emotionally eating or we, we get 
are we just doing any, not even food, anytime we have a behavior that we're like, wow, I just did something that probably isn't for my highest good. Those moments are really important because they are the gateway to us to, for us to see what's holding us back and to clear it. It's getting our attention to say, hey, there's something else here. Right. And so people often go into judgment and shame about those moments, but noticing that you are doing something that, as you just said, is not in your highest good is fabulous because that means there's somebody home noticing, oh, this doesn't really match who I know myself to be, what I want to be, what I know actually I am. And so the very fact that you've noticed it means you're not completely merged with it. You're not, you're not it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're noticing the behavior and that's beautiful. That's wonderful. Right. Now, what about when that voice sets in, though? You know, that voice that says, I should have figured this out by now. Here I am again. You know, the, the, the judgment around what we did. So, so, yes, we notice that we did it. We step away. But then that, that mean girl comes in. What do you, right, what do, you do with those voices? Well, what I do, there, there are two, two different things I do personally and two different things I teach people to do. Depending on your proclivity and what works for you. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that I know starting right off, is that no change ever happens by listening to that voice. Judgment and shame and deprivation and self-loathing never, ever lead to change. We have it so, so backwards in our culture, we think that, and I know I wrote about this in Women, Food, and God, that if we judge shame and hate ourselves enough, we'll end up happy, loving, self-respecting people. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's it so, so ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. It's <laughs> sort of like, how did we get to believing that? And what people will often say to me is, well, I know, but if I just can lose the weight, then I can start liking myself in a different way. It's no, that will not happen. If you don't, Start now. If you're not willing to start right now defending yourself from that mean girl voice, then you're not going to know how to do it when you lose weight either. Yes, such and a good so point. And so the first bite that you take, that you're going to start judging yourself. And then the reaction to the judging is going to be to shrink and collapse and then possibly to eat to make the voice go away. So the first thing is to notice that voice. Now, people do notice it, but they believe it. They so believe it. Because let's just say you lost weight and then you gained 10 pounds because you binged a lot. And somebody will say to me, but the thing is, it's true. I did gain 10 pounds. I did just blow it. I did just binge. I did not have any quote, willpower, which I don't believe in anyway, but I I did. That voice is right. And here's the thing. The way that that voice speaks to us 
all of us, because everybody's got that voice. You know, the clinical term for it is the superego. I love Mean Girl, what you just said. I call it, which is not exactly creative, the voice or the inner bully or the judge or the internalized parent or internalized critic. Whatever you want to call it, it functions the same way as a moral conscience, as if you know nothing and it knows everything. And there's only one way to do it and it knows the right way and every other way you do it is wrong. And there's no winning with that voice. So you have to sort of know a couple of things about that voice from the get-go. Everybody's got one. There's no winning. There's no way you can get it right. Because if you do lose weight and feel good about yourself, the voice will come in and say, yeah, well, who do you think you are feeling so good about yourself? You feel so proud of yourself? Come on. You're just so full of yourself. So either way, it cuts you off at the knees. And, of course, its main sort of mission is to protect you. So just in you know, a few kind words about that voice, which is that it started functioning when we were four years old. And it functioned as a way to keep the status quo status quo. So if your parents said to you, you must not do that, you internalized that. And that was a good thing that you did. It was good. So instead of your parents' voice telling you, don't put your hand in fire, don't throw food against the walls, don't hit your brother, you, your parents could stop telling you that because you internalized those voices. That helps you become an upstanding member of society who doesn't go to people's houses and throw food on the walls. That was a good thing that that voice did. At this point, it's no longer necessary. But it's still functioning in all of us until we recognize that it's not necessary and until we're able to either stand up to it and say any variety of things, go away, get lost, you're not my friend, this isn't helpful, I don't need you, um, but I'm, I'm not saying it the way I would ordinarily work with people and saying it with some degree of strength because that voice has usurped your strength and is using your own strength against you. It's sort of using that courage and strength and and um, bigness against you. So it becomes the big one and you become the little one. And the only way to equalize those forces is to stand to either stand up to it or to turn towards that in you which it's attacking. And usually when there's the presence of the mean girl, there's also the presence of a much younger image of yourself, a structure, an identity, a part, whatever you want to call it, that feels like it's doing it wrong. And it and so you can either stand up to the voice, to the mean girl, or you can turn towards that in you that needs kindness right now and say to that one, oh, honey, I'm so sorry that you have been binging. What's actually been going on? Tell me. 
And so you're letting that vulnerable part of yourself have a voice because usually we exile that part of ourselves. We don't want to know what's going on. And the voice comes in to shut the entire system down. Do we ever get rid of the voice? You get to the point where you don't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Where it comes in and it's just like a cloud passing, you know, in the sky. It's just like a thought, yet another thought that comes in and you don't pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. I I named mine, my friend and I decided to name our voices, besides the mean girl, I call it the executive. Yeah, it's not fine. the power, but it's like, it, like it's an old guy with a cigar with old beliefs about <laughs> what I should look like. And, uh, and now just kind of when we started to play with it and give it a silly name, it, it made the whole thing silly. So when I hear it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know who you are. Yeah, that's And it's, right. not, it's not a big deal. I'm just like, I'm not going to listen to you. But I, I hear you, but there's a, light, there's a lightness to it. Yes, that's great. Then you have found an effective way. Mm. And that's all that's necessary. Right. Is to find an effective way to deal with that. So what are, you said there was a, there's a few ways. So what's another way to kind of Well, those this? were the two ways. The either... Oh, yeah, turn either, yes, recap. Speak to the voice directly the way you are, which is, nah, I know who you are. I'm not going there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there are different varieties of things like that you can say. You know, you can use it, you can talk to it with humor. Like, you think I ate a lot for breakfast? Well, just watch what I eat for dinner. You know, just to get it off your back. You just want, you want. The direct approach, which is what you're talking about, when you say, oh, yeah, I know who you are, that's the direct approach. You're basically talking to that voice. Yes. The ex- you know, the executor- the executive or the mean girl, whatever you want to call that, you're talking directly to that voice. And you can use humor. You can use strength. You can do what you do, which is just say, got your number, honey, and you're not going to get me now. Mm-hmm. Or... You can turn to the one who's hiding behind your coattails, cowering um, from being talked to like that because people who believe their their voice, this, this voice in them, um, are just, you know, cowering about it. You know, that voice talks to us in ways we wouldn't dare talk to anybody else. Unkind and often cruel, sometimes vicious. And so what I do with myself when it, it gets me on the occasions that it does, the first thing I notice is that I am feeling small. There's a feeling of either collapse or I'm feeling bad and and I see I see the whole world through those eyes. I you know interactions that I thought went well, writing pieces that I've already finished, I start criticizing again. And I realize that that's what gets my attention. Oh, there's a negative pall on everything, a sort of critical 
negative Paul where I don't feel worthy. And then I realize, oh, the voice got me again. And at that point, most often I can just say, stop, no way. If I haven't caught it the way you catch yours, which is, nah, you know, I see what you're doing, no way. Sometimes I can do that and do do that most often, but sometimes I don't. And if I don't, and it already moves in to the territory of me, then I recognize the telltale signs of listening to it, which is a a general feeling of negativity, not being worthy, um, criticizing myself, feeling small, paralyzed, collapsed, weak, things like that. And then I realize, okay, it's happened again. And so I, at that point, because I've been working with it for a long time, I can usually just disengage the way you're talking about you do by recognizing it. Mm -hmm. If I can't, just by doing that, then I will ask myself if there's something I need to attend to, some vulnerability, something that needs to be expressed, a, 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 you know, a, just a really tender, vulnerable, younger sense of myself that feels bad about something and or that is concerned. And then I'll just attend to that. Mm. When I was having a – when my book launched during the launch process, when it was actually doing very, very well – I started to have a hard time with that. And I started to feel very overwhelmed. And I remember um, Cheryl Richardson reached out to me and we were chatting on the phone. And I told her, I'm like, I am just having sleepless nights. And I'm so ashamed to admit this, but I haven't been tapping. And I was so embarrassed because here I am. I wrote a book about this stress relief technique. I tell everybody about how amazing it is. And here I am in a panic state and I'm not turning to it. And you know, I, I admitted this, you know, I felt like it was like this shameful secret to Cheryl. And she just goes, what you're feeling right now, you're not grown up adult Jess. You're a little girl. You're little scared Jess. And little Jess doesn't know tapping yet because you didn't uh-huh. even learn tapping until you were much older. So uh-huh. where you need to start is to go to that little girl and say, I see you. I release judgment. I love you. And then when you can address that little girl, and, and we did that, we did that together, and then we were able, then I was like, oh, let me do what I know, because now I actually feel like I'm thinking straight. Yeah. I'm resourceful. Right. I can use all the tools that I know and teach and the things I've read in or listened to on podcasts. But when you're in that moment, you have to give yourself just this, this moment of compassion. Yes, right. That's right. Yes, that's just what I'm talking about, turning towards that in you, which feels overwhelmed or collapsed or frightened or rejected and really taking her in. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is not something you do once. I think that's no. the thing. People, people do it once and they go, but I did that. <laughs> <laughs> Last huh. Saturday, I was completely nice to myself. <laughs> right no it's an ongoing 
you know, I don't exactly want to call it relationship with yourself, but it's an ongoing way of being in and with yourself, which is what we talked about. You know, you asked me that question at the very beginning. It was the first question you asked. Why is this the way it is with food? And my answer was, it's not actually about food. It's really about the ways we are in ourselves and with ourselves and whether we need our thoughts and beliefs and feelings or whether we just want to shut them down. That's what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. That's part of what I was talking about, which is what we're now talking about. It's meeting yourself. It's seeing, oh, yes, I'm scared. I'm overwhelmed. Now what? And I'm not doing anything I know how to do. I I love that in Women, Food, and God, you take eating and just our relationship with food and you show us how that relationship is just the gateway to look inside, to do more work, to have greater transformations in our lives. And so when we're looking at just being more aware with ourselves and looking at our relationship with food, I know that you you teach some practical tips. What are some tips that we can do so that we're able to stay in tune with how we're feeling as we're eating? Well, the very first thing is really to believe, and most people don't believe, that their relationship with food is truly a portal. You know, we can give it lip service. I can say to you, I know that to be true 100%. There is nothing in me that doubts that, ever. But but if you don't believe that, then you're not going to get on board with this. You're still going to want to fix it and make it go away. You're going to jump into another diet. You are. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, the first step is actually seeing and understanding that it truly is a portal. Why? Because if you're using food to express things, a lot of the time you don't even know you're feeling, it's the gateway to your feelings. It, every time you use food when you're not hungry, that is an immediate sign that something's going on that you need to pay attention to that you're not paying attention to. So our food and our relationship with food follows our relationship with ourselves. It's not independent of, it's not separate from. You don't fix your relationship with food truly without truly knowing yourself more. You can fix it in in terms of losing weight, but when you lose the weight, you won't lose the beliefs that created it. And so the question becomes, do you want to work like this? Do Do you want to... Be curious about your relationship with food. Do you want to find out what it is? I often refer to the relationship with food as a language. You know, for me, for many years, I was speaking in a language that I didn't understand. And because I had never bothered to decipher it or learn even the the 
the words of this language, the alphabet, I didn't even know what I was trying to say to myself. Through overeating. I didn't get it. I just thought I was self-destructive and crazy. I thought I was insane. Mm-hmm. Just like truly mad, a mad person because of, of the of the seemingly insane eating I did, which really, truly was off the charts in terms of how much I ate, when I ate, the the self-loathing with which I ate, the amount of weight that I could gain in two months, 80 pounds in two months. Um, it was off the charts. And I just figured I was lost and doomed because Somebody would not eat like that who wasn't an insane, mad, crazy person. And I needed to be ashamed of that, of course, because, you know, who wanted to be with an insane person like me? So that's the first thing. Are you willing to give up seeing yourself as crazy Mm. and as needing to be fixed yesterday and as needing to lose weight? 15 minutes ago, are you, or do you want to keep going in the direction you're going? Because some people do, and it's okay. I don't have any judgment at all about people who want to go a different way, who want to keep going on diets, losing weight, and then gaining it back, and losing it again, and gaining it back. That's that's a choice. That's a way to live. You just have to decide what you want to do. Are you in it for the short-term gain, which is basically short-term weight loss, or do you want to find out who you are, why you're eating, what's going on, what you want yourself to know that you haven't been able to let yourself know any other way except through the portal of food. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you sneak in one more tip? That's the first one. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. know I know there's like, really there's like seven of them. So people should need to just buy your book and go to your workshop. But for now, <laughs> but, you know, hold them over. What I just said wasn't really a tip. It was just an orientation mm, okay. to the rest. Yes. And because I think I often overlook that and people often do overlook that yeah. when they read my books. Um, they overlook what they most want from being alive, from their life here on earth. And that might not be it. Right. So I think it's good to answer that first. Now, in terms of the kind of tips that you're talking about, what I, I mean, I have the eating guidelines and nobody likes to hear those either because they turn those into rules immediately. But, you know, the biggest tip I can say is eat what your body wants your body, not your mind, wants when it's hungry and feel what you feel when it's not. So feel so what you feel the, when you're not hungry? Yes. So when you want to turn to food and you're not hungry, what's going on? Mm. Or yes, when sir. you want to keep eating and you're, you're full, you know, you were hungry, but now you're full, you've had enough. What's happening? So there's an ongoing curiosity about about what's going on with you and food. Right. And so I can talk in very specific, if you want me to, 
about those eating guidelines. I'm totally fine doing that. They're very simple. They're mostly about listening to what your body wants to eat. And a lot of people don't know what their bodies want. They know what their minds want. They know what they've been told. They know what they're supposed to want. They know what the latest research says about putting turmeric on everything, um, about (laughs) coconut water. Um, You know, they know all that stuff. We know that stuff. Um, But we're not quite tuned into our bodies because we keep thinking of our bodies as objects, as sort of our heads are attached to these appendages. And our bodies are supposed to match the image we have of them, but we're not really living inside our bodies very much. And so it's very hard to tell what we want to eat. Yes. Do I want something hot? Do I want something cold? Do I want something with protein? Is protein and fat really what my body wants right now? Do I want something lighter? Do I want to eat? You know, we hear all these conflicting things about eating eating at night. You should eat at night. You shouldn't eat at night. You shouldn't eat after 5 o'clock. You should fast until 12 noon. You know, the rules, the food rules are so intense. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the biggest takeaways I got from your guidelines, and I encourage everyone to get your book and to learn those guidelines, but I always, I love food. I've always loved food. I've always been an eater. And Uh (laughs) I thought that was my problem. I thought, oh, you know, there's those other girls that like when they get sad, they don't want to eat. And I'm like, I'm the opposite. I want to eat when I'm sad and I want to eat when I'm happy. I just (laughs) love eating. And I thought that was my downfall. I thought that was just, you know, some problem in my brain. And what I realized was if I love eating and I love eating, then let me really love it. And I realized what I was doing was not loving it. I was eating while standing up over the, you know, eating over the kitchen sink. You can't really enjoy your food over a kitchen sink. I was eating while watching a movie. You can't really love your food and enjoy it and, you know, watch a movie. So when I... No, you can't. You can't. You're not present with it. And so that's the one thing, like every, you know, and... That's just my one non-negotiable in my life. When I'm eating food, I don't want to be watching TV. I, I, and I'm not, I don't want to be standing up. I want to just fully love my food because I love eating. And that changes everything. <laughs> it does because you realize that when you love something, you pay attention to it. And there's no way of really paying attention to what you're eating when you're doing something else. Right. Including panicking, you know, including yeah. having that moment of being like, oh, let me go grab something. Yeah. You're not pre- you know, you're not present with it. So, so I think your, your guidelines are great. Your work is great. I could speak to you for another five hours. Luckily, you have amazing workshops and amazing books that everybody can check out. But tell us about your workshops because I know they're incredible. Yeah. You write a lot about them too. I write a lot about my retreats because they are six days long. Their retreats and workshops are two different things. The retreats are six days long and they are immersion experiences. And every moment of every day of the six days is set up to support people 
looking deeply at themselves and their relationship with food. We do eating meditations every day where you get to see the, all the ideas and images you project upon food. Um, there are a lot of uh, exercises in pairs and trios where you're inquiring. There is small group work every day. There, it's just, they're just fabulous to be six days in a place where every moment is supported. There, there's so much love mm-hmm. and support and community in those retreats. And there's nothing like showing up. I, I do say this a lot. Um, there's nothing like showing up in person to something because there is, there is something about being in a live group with living people where you can feel your heart's desire and you can feel other people's longing and that whole field of support and insight and growth reaches a geometric sort of proportion because it's you plus 100 other people and you times 100 is a lot of energy. It's a lot of Love, it's a lot of insight, and all of that gets supported. The field itself does a lot of the supporting. The workshops that I teach are, um, well, the one that's coming up is at the Kripalu Center. I do one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast every year. And the one that's coming up is at the Kripalu Center in the Berkshires. It's um, one night and two days, and it gives you a taste of the work. We do a lot of exercises, of course, that similar to what I do in retreats. The length of time is what's different. And the, um, the, the field, though, of being with so many other people who want the same thing as you do, who are having aha moments every couple of minutes, is exhilarating and exalting and very powerful and supportive. So those are the two events that are coming up that I have, one in October, the 9th to the 11th at the Kripalu Center and the other in California. I only do retreats in California, one in the spring, one in the fall. And this one, I think, starts on the 2nd to the 8th of November and it's at the Asilomar Center on the ocean in Monterey. It's beautiful. Mm. How can people, what website should people go to to check these they out? They go to my website to find that out. It's JanineRoth.com. And of course, if they don't know how to spell my name and hardly anybody does, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I see it spelled. In fact, if I go to Starbucks, I just tell them my name is Jane. I forget <laughs> Janine, forget it, um, because nobody knows how to spell it. It's with a G, G-E-N-E-E-N, Roth, R-O-T-H. And all the information is there under the events tab. And I really, really recommend that everybody that's listening look into those events, see if it's a good fit for you, and pick up Janine's books. They really are amazing. I'm so grateful they entered my life at the perfect time. And Janine, I hope we get to meet in person soon. I'm going to put it out there. Oh, I do too. I I would would love that. I would love that. You are so smart and lovely Mm -hmm. and incredibly kind and generous for spending so much time with us. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much. Aw, thank you, Jessica. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.